0: Hi, and welcome to Work Life Cafe podcast. My name is Kashif, and together with Sam, we want to have a dialogue with you about life, work, and how to thrive in our always connected world. Work Life Cafe podcast is brought to you by Manpower Group Malaysia, If you want to talk to us about a specific topic or would like to ask some questions, go to manpower.com.my forward slash worklifecafe. Submit your suggestions or questions there and we will gladly address them. That's manpower.com.my forward slash worklifecafe. To set the scene for our discussion today, I want to start by saying that I noticed if you ask around, some people will say that being a jack of all trades, meaning having skills in many areas with no particular specialization, is what's needed in today's professional world. They say this is because if you are working in a certain field, your clients, your bosses and peers seem to expect you to know everything about that field. Some will argue that jacks enjoy more flexibility in the job market. On the other hand, many will tell you that being committed to staying on top of a specific area of expertise is the way to go. Those who become a master of one trade enjoy stability and clarity over their profession, which provides them also higher pay potentials. So to discuss the merits of becoming a specialist, we have today with us an ambitious thought leader in the construction industry. Her passion to guide, inspire, and direct future leaders and industry professionals led her to founding the first Construction Coach consultancy, theconstructioncoach.com.au, in Australia. She is also the host of Constructing You podcast and a best-selling author of a unique book, Constructing Your Career. This book offers practical, actionable, and inspirational advice to build an exemplary career in construction. Eleanor Moshe Welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And it's great to be on the other side of the microphone. To start our conversation, perhaps you could share a little
0: bit about your journey and how you decided to specialize in the construction sector specifically.
1: I started my career thinking that I would become a grandiose architect and I would have my name on the buildings and I would be the one calling the shots. But I'm forever grateful that that dream died as quickly as I conceived it. So I was attracted to the construction industry during my undergraduate slash master's journey because I'm someone who's quite process orientated and I was more interested in how projects actually came to be. So I went on and established my own successful career in construction. And, you know, you, they do say whoever they are is to start a business around what people always come to you for. And people always came to me for advice and insights regarding how to actually achieve more within their career and construction. Externally, it seemed that I had achieved everything that people were were wanting. But for me, I I was still quite unfulfilled in my own journey. So that's when I actually took the time and worked on My own vision. What is it that I really want out of my own career in construction? So I spent a lot of time actually conceiving that vision for myself. And it was through asking better questions that I started getting better answers as to how can I serve more people who are coming to me with these types of questions about what it means to be in construction from a career perspective and a personal perspective. Fast forward the story a little bit. I, you know, the universe downloaded the idea of the construction courage into me, and it's evolved since its conception. I thought that I'll only start with a blog, but it has become, you know, f- something far more exciting than that, from private mentoring to masterminds, events when COVID allows so a podcast, a book, and, you know, so much more opportunities than I even could have imagined in one and a half years since I started.
0: Eleanor, allow me to uh, take you back a little bit. For the benefit of our younger audience, you mentioned that you have studied, you started studying in the construction industry, correct? Yes. What was the motive behind choosing this particular field? I don't want to be sounding sexist. This field might, for some, not be associated with females. So how did you decide to approach this specific field? And uh, did you face any social pressures or misunderstandings from your peers and, and family? And How did you cope with that?
1: I didn't know that women were a minority prior to entering into the industry. It started making sense when in the first lecture that I sat in in 2013, there were only 10 in the class. But that certainly wasn't a deterrent. And I don't make decisions for me or for anyone else based on gender, religion or race. You cannot change that about yourself. They're not qualifiers to a future that it is that you want. And at the time, you know, I thought, well, I don't want to do architecture. So I think I need to go study, which of course you do not in construction in order to have an exceptional career. I looked at the prospectus and said, well, urban planning is really boring. I don't want to do architecture. I just narrowed it down that way. But I also really looked into construction and it felt like The right pathway which would allow me to understand the whole project life cycle including the finances the procurement the legalities the ethics it is the whole life cycle and it's more focused on management and people rather than what you do which is engineering and you know something on a far more technical base which I am a hundred percent not especially not to that level in which you know specialized consultants in architecture and engineering actually perform so it at the time felt like the right decision to make and here we are, it certainly was.
2: Would we be right in saying that you're focusing more on the human element of construction rather than the the technical? Because the construction industry is somewhere where I spent my formative years, although I'm a chemical engineer by training, I actually spent my first four years working, constructing roads in the UK. And, and I can tell you, you can certainly get an education from working with the construction industry right across the board, so I'm I'm kind of intrigued in terms of the type of things that people would come to you for. What sort of advice are you you getting asked?
1: 100%. My whole focus from the start is on the macro and the micro of a person. You know, my Constructing You podcast is really about making sure that people become before they achieve. It's who you actually have to become. In order to have an exemplary career in construction and in constructing you i really focus on the micro on the granular of the individual and it was actually one of my podcast guests which said that you know everything you do really brings that human front it humanizes construction because construction isn't nla how precast goes up i mean that's the byproduct but when you look at the construction industry as a whole it is the sum of its people If we actually want to change the systemic issues and the structural issues that the industry as a whole experiences, you need to change the people. And if that means one by one, then so be it. That's what I will do until until that is well, maybe not achieved in my lifetime, but I'll give it my best shot. So and I also knew that, you know, at the start of my journey, I looked, you know, what were people talking about. When people talk about construction, they will talk about the projects, the project wins, the project values, procurement methods, risk management, project management, like very things that have been regurgitated again and again. And I also knew myself well enough that I know what conversations light me up. And it is about career success. It is about constructing your own exceptional future. It is about standing out in a credible and notable way It is about working with confidence. It's about the person. So, you know, that's also the subtitle of my book. What's the greatest project that you'll ever get to work on? It's you. It's always you. And people in the construction industry will go their whole career working on projects external to themselves. They're never actually doing anything on this front, which actually brings you the fulfillment because we're not the sum of our projects. We're not the sum of the value that we've delivered. We are far more than that. and. What I've you know really been doing is bringing that focus back into the individual, and you know I have to hold up a mirror for people to see. Hey, this is what's going on with you first, before we can actually fix everything in the industry.
2: It's really interesting because I'm looking at it with the benefit of thirty years of work, and I wish I'd spoken to you when I was uh, when I was a young man starting <laughs> in the industry. But that's maybe a, a conversation for later. But the construction industry is known for being a very conservative, very slow moving industry. Where are you finding the most significant barriers in terms of moving forward? Because on the one hand, the science behind construction, although you've things like material sciences and and, and how we construct has changed, but fundamentally the industry hasn't changed in its core for a very long time. So then you have the stress of changing and people who've pretty much defined themselves by the job that they do. So where are you finding the biggest opportunities for change and the biggest opportunities for growth for the industry?
1: A big part of the resistance to change always comes down to the philosophies and ethos which people have been adopting. It's that conventional thinking which people are actually internalizing and not challenging. When you just take on the status quo and then become a parrot and repeat what everyone else is saying. That's not going to actually break the cycle. Nothing will change. Like nothing changes if nothing changes. So it has a lot to do with the mindsets and the individual frameworks and thoughts and philosophies and paradigms and worldviews that people are adopting. I mean, people on their own granular and personal level are fearful of change. So they're not going to be the ones who are going to start the next contact or uh, prop tech companies that we're going to be seeing that are going to revolutionize everything. But even with some of these ideas that are already in circulation, construction, as you know, it's low margins. There's high risk. When something goes wrong, it can really go wrong. And if you actually want to be the early adopters, whether that's of policies, of changing things, anything, no one really wants to stand up and be that early adopter. But those that do, they're the movers and shakers of the industry and they're doing exemplary things. And they know that the long term benefit always will outweigh any short term costs that are incurred as a result of doing it and that's really the the wealth of opportunity is to find that niche within the industry find what it is that you are so passionate about that you want to be the thought leader that you want to be vocal about and actually be the agent for that change because you're right it is a very conservative industry and it is so ripe for disruption and change we need that a breath of fresh air for people to do things differently, as I have been.
2: I was going to say, I think you, you, know, a lot of what you're saying absolutely resonates and will continue to resonate, I think, for many years to come. So where are you focusing your attention? It's such a big industry, like a web of intrigue, for want of a better description. You've got the clients who are dictating certain specifications and ways of doing things. You have the EPC contractors who are driving a whole myriad of subcontractors. And the change needs to start somewhere you know when you're when you're dealing with that kind of a sort of cascade structure, you would start at the top and it cascades all the way down. but more often than not, the customer is the most conservative, and change can very often come from you know lower down in the chain. So can you share with us a bit of your experience in that space? Where are you driving that change? where you're seeing it getting traction, and where are you getting sort of resistance to that change?
1: you know as a thought leader, we base our work, our brand assets and people's psychographic factors rather than demographic factors. So I work with people across a whole range from, you know, entry level wanting to get in up to quiet, you know, senior business owners as well. It's more about the factors associated with the individual and what they want and what they wish to achieve. And if they're actually willing to break out of their cycle to move out of their comfort zone. But of course, with my brand, with my positioning, with how I talk, with who I'm it certainly doesn't attract everyone and that's the mm. point of having a brand because it's meant to attract the people who are meant to be in my world and it 100% repels people who cannot cannot stand me and cannot stand what i do and how much i show up and everything that i do so it's always you know the opposition is about people who are simply not attracted to you know what my message my world how i actually do things the resistance is always about people who are operating and looking at things from their own worldview they're seeing it with one lens from their perspective, and that very little has so much to do with where in the industry they're from, you know, I work with both head contractors and client side project managers and quantity surveyors. So the job titles, that qualifier, it's the individual themselves.
0: You know, Eleanor, this is what Sam keeps telling us. If you want to be a leader, you're not contesting in a popularity competition, right? That's right. Saying by Steve Jobs, who said, if, if you want everybody to like you or something along those lines, don't be a leader, go and sell ice cream. <laughs> so, so um, I think to be a driver of change, you will definitely face and find people who will resent your approach or the method that you're adopting. Um, th- that actually shows you that you are probably on the right track. Because unless you find people resisting you, it wouldn't be, what you're doing wouldn't be much of a change then. Again, focusing on, on the topic of our conversation, why do you think that it is better to be a specialist uh, in today's world, especially now with the pandemic, rather than be more of a generalist? Because I'm, I'm not an expert in the construction industry, but in my field, in marketing, you have so many different areas where employers and managers bosses and clients expect you to know them so when you say you're a marketer they will throw at you okay can you vi- edit this video from video editing they will throw at you can you d- develop a website for me from developing a website can you promote my smartphone application so all of these fields are are very different that require specialization being a generalist in many cases provides you flexibility of moving from one employer to another from one client to another whereas being a specialist really uh, requires you to find that specific client who needs your particular skill set. Why do you promote becoming a specialist? Why do you think this is the way to go?
1: You know, before we started recording, we were talking about the coaching market. So let's look at that example. Let's say I am a consumer, I am a client, and I am, and I have a need to work with a coach. Okay, how many mindset coaches are there in the marketplace? How does one actually even pick Everyone is a mindset coach. Everyone can be a a fitness coach. Everyone calls themselves, you know, abundance and mindset coach, wealth coach, whatever it is. And then two weeks later, oh, that's not working out. They'll actually change it. They'll change their title. How does a consumer actually make a decision? How do you actually know who is the go-to person? Who is the one that will solve my problem? Who is the one that I know that I'm going to get the results that I actually want. And they are the person that I want to work for. They're for me. When you actually position yourself as that authority in that niche, you're already, you're eliminating your competition because you are so able to congruently position yourself as the go-to person, as the only person who does this, whatever it is that you do, that you are you've entered into a space of non-compete. People cannot actually compete with you after a while. And in order to really establish your authority, you need to work in a micro niche. So, you know, I'm I'm obviously quite specific in what I do. I could have gone broad and said careers or career coach. I mean, how many career coaches are there? There are so many, but I am focusing on exactly what I do. What is it that I do? And I stick to my lane. When someone, you know, has, even when they think they have a need, Well, they can already associate me with that need. I may not convert a client because we may not be a match and that's happened before and that's fine, but you get the lead. You already get the lead because there are no other options. There is no other choice. There is no other way for them to proceed in order to get the results that only I can offer. And when you enter into that space, yes, of course, you're in a space of non-compete, but you're able to position yourself so. Congruently and really cement your authority and become that go-to person, then you start influencing your income because you can start developing brand assets. You you can be a consult, you can start consulting back into your industry. You start collaborating with people who want specifically access to that audience that you have built. And the list of benefit goes on and on and on. But becoming a specialist is necessary when you want to enter into that. You know, that thought leadership world and to be recognized for that one thing, because once you become known and once you absolutely obliterate one arena, you can go be known for anything that you want. Right. But also what we do in the thought leadership world, it's not our business name, which we promote. It's us. It's Eleanor Mosher. People have a connection with Eleanor Mosher. They don't have a connection with the construction coach. They find me. Either they like me or they really don't like me, and then they find out, okay, these are all the things that Eleanor does. Because the thought leadership world, we know that what do people connect with? People connect with people. And the thought leadership model actually flips conventional entrepreneurship on its head when, you know, first you might find out about Nike, only later on will you know that it's Phil Knight. But if you look at Musk, everyone knows Musk, but not everyone knows all the businesses that he has. Everyone knows Tony Robbins, but I don't think many people know his hundreds of businesses that he owns. You build that relationship with a person, and when connection is the new currency, how much more specialized than that when, someone, when you have that affinity with someone, not based on just what you do, but who you are?
2: It's interesting, Eleanor, your perspective on it. I, I'm kind of in two minds about whether we're talking about the individual or the business. So if it's from an individual basis, I couldn't agree with you more. I think people buy from the individual that they engage with, whatever they do. And you used Elon Musk. He's a polarizing person. You know, you either love him or you hate him. But the last thing I would ever call Elon Musk is a specialist. He's not a niche player. He achieves certain things by the skill sets that he has. So, from your perspective, do you view it? Your specific specialization is my particular brand is a specialist in. And how would you view that from a corporate perspective? Now, again, we're talking about two different things. And very often you have, people like Elon Musk, people like Steve Jobs who start off life as being a niche player. They have a particular competence. They have a particular skill set that they bring to an environment and bang, then scalability comes. So how would you apply that to your particular situation? Because clearly you're very very strong at expressing your views and i would imagine many clients would be pleased in terms of having you on board because you can express your thoughts in a very traditional industry and you would certainly command attention especially at the you know at the boardroom level but then how do you scale that
1: that's a good perspective and observation that you picked up so positioning yourself as a thought leader being you know this is these are my strengths this is my core message this is my philosophy this is what i'm here to do as if you want to then scale that into entrepreneurship then you have businesses which are an extension of your message and the problem that you're solving in a marketplace but of course you can become a thought leader within an organization and you still th- solve those you know internal issues within an organization and you become known as a person who might be the innovator might be the Again, the product specialist, like this is what you do. This is your lane because you've identified your strengths. You've worked on your brand. You've worked on how to actually strategically craft impact, how to actually bring people on board with you. So you can solve a problem and then go out into the big wide world and go to the mass market, or you can do that within your own organization. And as you are probably familiar, construction companies are very conservative, and especially in Australia. The percentage of intrapreneurs, not entrepreneurs, is only 9%. There is so much untapped potential to become an intrapreneur within an organization and to become an entrepreneur within the business. No one's saying go out and start your own thing. Absolutely not. People love what they do. But you can really maximize the opportunities within an organization, and that's how you start to actually become indispensable. You become that person that when a recession hits, when the effects of COVID comes, they will not let you go because the value that you bring to a company, based on your thinking, on your originality, on your innovation, based on who you are, they will not let that go.
2: So a lot of the attributes that you're describing speak to a single point, and that's a problem solver, somebody who's able, to be able to identify a situation from a human perspective and then start to align strategies with where the business is going and how do you drive superior results? Would you agree that that's the sort of approach that you're taking?
1: Definitely. I mean, that's fundamentally what an entrepreneur does. The larger and more complex problem that you solve, then that becomes a value that you add to the marketplace. So yes, you are actually not just solving any problem, it has to be a problem that you are passionate about and that you have an emotional connection with. Because Mm. otherwise, when something isn't emotionally fueled, or when you don't have that emotional connection, or when you don't actually have a high level of specialization within it, and you don't know enough about it, then someone else can come and overtake you. They can learn just as much. So it's more about also generating insight and distinctive thinking when it comes to that problem, that opportunity, that niche that you actually identify in the marketplace. But that's the start of it. In order to actually make an impact with that, that's when a personal brand comes in. That's when it, that's when you need to learn persuasion, trust, influence. That's when you actually need to know how to speak with impact, how to actually command authority, how to have a pitch, how to there's so many how-to's that are actually associated with conveying that message whether that's to the masses or even whether it is within an organization
2: absolutely so would you say your focus is more on the individual rather than the corporation yes so you're you're coaching them to become that kind of a a communicative person the ability to be able to navigate the minefield of you know the political landscape versus what's right for the organization because very often and again it brings my memory back to many, many incidents in the construction industry where what's good for the company is not necessarily what happens because there is a political ecosystem that you've got to navigate. So being right and being recognized as what you're saying is good for the company doesn't necessarily always get traction. So you're helping them navigate all of these minefields.
1: Yes. You know, my work and what I do with individuals, well, industry professionals and ambitious future leaders is work with them to achieve higher remuneration, faster progression and more recognition. And in order to do that, well, that's either A, getting into industry in the first place, but B, then it's that leadership and it's the thought leadership part that comes with it because there is so much opportunity that is available within organisations to actually cause that disruption and innovation as long as it's done in a credible and notable way that actually provides value to the business.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. And and how would you advise people choosing that path, or which particular path or what particular actions or focus areas that because clearly there's 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 a lot of content in what you're saying.
1: At different levels, of course, there's more considerations, but for the purposes of the discussion, It's answering a simple question. It's simple, but it's not simple to answer. And that's, what do you want? What does an individual want? It sounds like a simple question, but I have asked that to people who have been 15 years in industry, 20 years, and they can't answer that question. And to some, it's actually the first time that they've been asked that question. So, you know, I've asked people that question and they've left the construction industry, which I think is a fantastic outcome. So they can go and find whatever it is that they want to do. I mean, what's worse than living out on following a plan that wasn't set by you, a future that wasn't determined by you. So that's a fantastic outcome. I can ask someone that question at the 15-year mark, and I actually have an inkling to not be in the industry and someone actually dominate that game. But it's always it always comes back to what does an individual want, and people do not spend near enough time envisioning what they want. And then they, that's how they actually start carrying out other people's dreams. And they get to the end of the road and they wonder what happened.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, and again, doing a little bit of self-reflection based on my own personal experience, in the construction industry, typically you spend most of your life getting to a point where you can answer that question. The rest of it is determined by your boss. And by the time you've got to that position, you've kind of forgotten what you worked all of those years to achieve, and I suspect that's why many people, like myself, uh, maybe use the construction industry as a stepping point because it's certainly teaching you an awful lot about you know life and about working with individuals, and the skill sets that you accumulate working in the industry can serve you very well in almost any other industry in life. So yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic, and it's a very interesting industry to sort of be applying that to.
1: Absolutely. And what you get exposed to in, you know, the first five years in construction is just incredible. It's from legalities to people to politics. You get the whole suite, but that's not the end of the, the line for someone's career. There is a whole other pathway. There's a whole other level to be explored. And people just actually need to sit with that question and think, what do they actually want? from this industry, what do they actually, you know, why are they even in this industry? If you don't have a compelling why, it won't get you very far. And like you correctly pointed out, you get to a destination and you don't even remember what it was all for.
2: We should have spoken when I was a lot younger.
1: No, well, hopefully <laughs> we'll... I would have
2: made some different moves then.
1: <laughs> in another lifetime.
2: Yes,
0: perhaps. So you've mentioned the why. I noticed that many people, they kind of fail to realize that to become a specialist, it requires a long-term, day-in, day-out grind, doing the same thing all over again, failing again, getting up again, and trying again. Some will, just like we started the conversation, will start something thinking that this is their passion, right, this is what I want, this is, uh, this is my destiny try it for a couple of weeks, and then it turns out it's not their destiny after all. They find out that they are passionate or interested in another field, and they keep changing this, which I think is fine. They'll get exposure to different areas. But how do you actually get to stay focused and try something out for enough to decide, in your opinion, how long does it take you to decide? Or what is the the threshold where you say, right, this is not for me? and once you find what you feel is your destiny how do you stay focused and not get distracted especially nowadays with all the opportunities that are around us from like in your case you're starting your own coaching business and there are so many other business types I mean, getting employed drop shipping all of these trends that are coming up right now gig work freelancing all of these things are coming up available for people how do you stay focused and uh, resist the temptation to move elsewhere
1: That's a fantastic question and you know I've been doing I've been consistent for a very long period of time and you do see people on linkedin that like i said one day they're a coach and the next day they've got a drop shipping product so on and so forth there's nothing wrong with trialing because as steve jobs says you can't connect the dots looking forward you can only connect it looking backwards and sometimes it is these chain of events which lead to which lead you organically to what you need to be doing But I'm not one to leave things to chance. What works for me and what should work for most people is to have a compelling vision that you have a burning desire to achieve. I know my vision with absolute clarity. I know who Eleanor in 10 years' time is. I know what she has. I know the kind of impact that she has. I know what her days are filled with. I know what she gets to do. And it's that vision, which I cannot dare give up on. Even if it takes me 20 years instead of 10 years, it's my own vision. I have been given my vision unique to me for a reason. It's been downloaded into me. That's why every single one of us have very different visions. And not knowing that vision is the same as getting into your car and just driving. And you think you're going to arrive at a destination. You're not arriving at a destination because you never put anything into the GPS. You will continue to drive endlessly where are you going your vision serves as that north star the vision is always going to be expansive but to actually identify what that vision is you need to ask yourself very deep and considerate questions one of course being what do i want if today was the last day what would i have what do i want people to say about me do i want to even be remembered after i'm gone is legacy important to me what are my core values What is it that actually allows me to operate in my zone of genius? What actually makes me come alive? So you need to really have a deep understanding of your person, of what actually is in alignment with what you love doing. I love speaking. I will do it for free, and I do it for free anyway. I absolutely love speaking, and I know that I've been given this voice and this persona and a presence for a reason. It wasn't to be Sitting in a cubicle drafting, for example, that's not my not where my natural talent aligns. So going on the journey that I had, I spent a lot of time with my mentor, understanding my own person, because who you are, that's the basis of all decisions. If you do not actually understand yourself, then you cannot actually make good and conducive decisions that lead you to your own version of success. So it's those two things, knowing who you are and knowing your own vision, which Just that alone will immediately set you on the right track and not lead you constantly astray and certainly doesn't allow you to fall into that, you know, shiny new object. And, you know, I get it as well. You see people make, you know, some make quick money or some have quick success here, but it's all quick success. It's not lasting success. I'm in this for a lifetime, not a year. So having that vision always allows me. I know what I'm doing it for when the moments are tough, when you get that backlash online, when When things don't work out to plan, they don't happen quick enough. It all happens more than you can even anticipate sometimes. But I know what I'm doing it for.
2: You come across as being very, very focused, Eleanor. Tell us, where do you see yourself in 10 years? It's obviously very clear in your own mind. Tell us, what's Eleanor doing in 10 years?
1: The fascinating part was that I didn't even anticipate that At around the one and a half to two year mark, I would have what I have and get to do what I do and have the type of clients that I get to work with. I mean, one of my clients sent me a letter. I asked for just testimonial on a program. And he sent me a full one page letter detailing in so much depth, the impact that he had with working with me. And this was the first time that anyone's ever written me a letter other than my year seven pen pal that I met at a spelling bee, which doesn't really compare. Not much was happening in grade six or seven at the time, but I didn't even think that that was possible at the year two mark. So my job is to be constantly expansive with my vision. I do see me doing more of what I am already doing, which is of course creating that impact, but I want to be creating impact on a global scale. If someone thinks construction, they're going to know my name simultaneously, whatever part of the world they're in. And I know that that is just the beginning.
2: Obviously, the impact that you're making is just because you're so closely involved in what you do. Having a global impact means scale. So how do you scale Eleanor from being a very immersed, very focused, very specialized individual to a global brand?
1: that's a really good question. The brand is already global. I've already set it up in a way to have that global appeal. And I already have clients in multiple countries. So at the start, when you're starting to play the game, that's when you actually start thinking, okay, where do I actually want to be? I'm not making decisions on, you know, limiting myself to a geographic area. I'm already thinking about How can we expand globally? And then there's course systems and processes and avenues and collaboration partners and brand assets, which allow you to create that reach. And this is the beautiful thing about a thought leadership model of business is with an idea, with a brand and an internet connection and a payment system, you can go anywhere.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. I think we live in a world now where that's possible, but I just can't help but think, most significant entrepreneurs in our recent lifetime have had challenges in scaling. They've been very, very focused individuals. They know exactly what they want and they've made an absolute nuisance of themselves in terms of, of scaling. So, you know, if you read Steve Jobs and what people have said about him, a lot of people who were very, very passionate about working with him said he was an absolute nightmare to work with. You know, that's the DNA of 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 somebody who's very, very focused, very clear on, on, on their vision. So do you see yourself going that way where you're going to be very careful about who you have around you to execute that brand, remain true to your brand, so you will have People who are very much like Eleanor, in which case, modern day thinking would say that this is going to be incredibly good from a specialization, but it may limit the amount of diversification. And again, if you look at what Apple started doing to what they do today, it started with a fairly clear and very narrow concept, and then they've diversified. So I'm, I'm keen to sort of get your thoughts in terms of how you see the evolution of Eleanor, the brand, as an individual versus Eleanor, the corporation. Long term, if in fact corporation is the way you want to go, it may be that you want to remain true to your calling and remain very, very niche and very specialized.
0: To point out something to your question, Sam, that uh, one of the ways that Eleanor is scaling, I mean, she came under my radar. I'm not in Australia and I'm not in the construction industry. So
2: something that she's doing is working. Oh, there's Um, no question in my mind globalization of an individual brand is no longer a matter of huge amounts of capital. That, that I think we can, we can throw out the window because we are each individuals walking as global brands. I think the key is, and again, it depends on the individual vision of, indivi- of, of people because I have friends who want to remain very small, very boutique, and they will pick and choose what they will do. So their vision is zero scale. I'm not a corporation. I'm an individual. And and I'm going to remain as an individual, you know, providing value. So what I was curious with Eleanor is, is she in that camp or is she in the camp of, you know, I've hit on something which is amazing in terms of transforming the industry, which is huge. So there's only so much impact you can make as an individual versus becoming a, a corporation. So I guess the question is in two parts. Number one is individual versus corporation. And and what do you see as the trade-offs for one versus the other?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, as I was saying, an individual needs to know what do they want. Do they want to be a CEO who has 100 people working for them? Do they want to have the office space and the building? Do they actually want to drive to an office space and this is where they conduct their own business? Do they want to have offices? That's part of the vision. That's not part of my vision. I don't need to have a hundred people working for me to feel fulfilled, I don't need fifty. This type of business model, you don't even need twenty people working for you. You need, again, very very good people that are very very specialized at what they do and are very very good at what they do. Finding those people who complement that and who also want to be the behind the scenes person, because in this type of business, there's only one leader, one visionary. Then finding those people is very important because they are going to then, you know they will take tasks that I don't want to be doing. And, and that frees me up. And then I get to create. And when you create, you bring more people into your world. So that's the type of scaling. Mm. I never had the dream of you know, having a physical building and this is where I go to work. I mean, if I wanted that, I could have started a construction company years ago. But it was knowing what it is that I want, how I want my life to look like, what do I love doing, where do I want to conduct business? Do I want to be able to go to Malaysia or South Africa and, and impact people. So it was really coming from that understanding. And, you know, if someone is chasing or wants that corporation, know why is it purely out of ego? Is it to prove a point? What, what is that actually facilitating? So again, knowing the what and the why of what you're trying to achieve and how you want your life to look out and and how you want to carry out your days. That's very, very important. But yes, as you touched on before, whether it's a project or anything that you do, the people that you surround yourself with, they can make or break a business. And I've learned very well from my mentor that you hire excruciatingly slow, but fire fast when you have to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think this is a, a very, very important key that goes across any industry. I mean, our business is all about human capital. So the choice of the individual and aligning them with a role and how they fit within an ecosystem becomes super critical in terms of achieving the end result. But you seem to be very, very clear in terms of where you want to go and how you're going to get there. So
0: We're almost at the top of the hour, and I have a, a, a burning question. To, to the extent that you, Eleanor, are focused and, and you have a very clear vision of what you want to do and how you want to do it, you will certainly have to have trade-offs, and will certainly have to face setbacks. Could you perhaps share a little bit of what trade-offs you had to make, sacrifices you had to make uh, to get to the level that you are at right now and potential trade-offs that you foresee you'll have to make to get to where you want to be, as well as the obstacles and challenges on the way that you had to overcome to become a specialist?
1: I happily talk about all of this because people see the likes, they see the content, they see the amazing guests, they see a book, but everything that goes behind it, is, it could be a podcast topic within itself. One thing that I'm very lucky to have as part of my innate nature is I'm very good at deferring gratification. I don't need an immediate gratification and this generation and probably, you know, people, most people want immediate gratification. And that's why subscription services like Netflix and Uber, we press, we get it now. We press, we get it now. And we know exactly what's coming. And that's it. We don't need to think about it. But when you're investing your time into wanting to impact people, there is no immediate gratification. I'm not promised anything. When I post content, I'm not promised anything, a podcast, no one's promised to listen. A clients, so I'm not promised anything. So in order to achieve what we want, we do have to keep on going. And yes, I defer intense amount of gratification when it comes to, you know, my own time. My time is first and foremost dedicated to that. But then again, I'm also very lucky that I've never been someone who's always been readily available. I mean one of the things that my dad instilled in me from a young age was say no. And I'm very good at that. So I'm very good at, you know, prioritizing. And if anything doesn't fall in alignment with those priorities, I say, no, it seems like I was always meant to be doing this. It's everything that I was meant to be uh, built up for, but sometimes you don't know what you're doing or something goes wrong at the last minute, or, you know, you want to put out an event, but then there's a lockdown or you have a webinar and you didn't get the conversion that you did, or you think that a client is going to sign up, but then they just waste your time and you don't hear from them and you've spent you know, around nearly two hours trying, you know, get onboarding them and admin time. There's challenges with, you know, trying to get opportunities or collaborations. There's simply time challenges, but then there's also the, you know, the business challenges, because when you start a business or any sort of activity, you create a lot of chaos. There's a lot of unstructured systems and processes that, that happen. So we need to actually organize the chaos, but at the same time, build a business. All this happens in parallel at the same time. But at the same time, we also need to work on ourselves. You know, I want to get to the next level. I have to work on myself first. I have to work on my own mindset, understanding my own blockers, working on, you know, my own thinking. And all of this requires a lot of time and a lot of sacrifice and being simply willing to do what other people won't do today. So you can also have what other people won't have in the future. And I'm more than happy to do that because I know that every single inch of my vision is going to come into fruition.
2: Very good concluding, uh, concluding thoughts, Eleanor. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and it's certainly given me some, uh, some food for thought on a number of the topics that we, uh, we discussed. Something completely and um, off topic. What, what's, what do you do when you're not working?
1: I love to spend a lot of time by myself. So again, I I really do enjoy my own company, probably a product of growing up as an only child, but I love delving into my own time and space, whether it's journaling, whether it's spending time with family, again, being an only child, I, I value family above all. And that kind of time, you don't get back. So, you know, spending quality and disconnected time with family, but then it's also about doing whatever feeds my soul, whether that's sometimes literally doing nothing. Or exercising, or reading, or creating, then you know I give myself time to also do that because if you go against the natural grain of your soul, that's not putting yourself in a good energetic alignment. But when the opportunity does allow, I do love to travel as well. So all those plans will be back on the cards once once we're all allowed to.
2: Yeah, hopefully not not too long now. Although you must have been really suffering over the last twelve months because you know Australia's had. Pretty strict lockdowns interstate, let alone outside of the country, so
1: Yes, we experienced Melbourne's longest and harshest lockdown, even me, who, like I said, love spending time by myself. by the end of it, it was like enough already.
2: Yeah, I can imagine I can imagine Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, uh, Eleanor, and um, I hope we get a chance maybe to work together in uh, in the future in some some way, shape or form.
1: Onwards and upwards, I am sure. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Eleanor Moshe,
0: thank you for joining us, and I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in to our episode today. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, go to manpower.com.my forward slash worklife cafe. If you would like to connect with Eleanor, go to her website, theconstructioncoach.com.au. Thank you all and stay safe.